and so this ad we'll have to talk about yeah. as well. This on the back cover, which uh, is my ad, but it's uh, it's uh, my logo isn't produced correctly in my ad. <laughs> so, um, well, how did that happen? Uh, well, I don't know exactly how it happened. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Did I Do That? Um, it's... Oh, I've thrown my card away. <laughs> There's mistakes happening all over Already, the place. Yeah. What a rollicking start. Um, welcome to Did I Do That? I don't re- even remember if I said that part. It's a show about the mistakes that we make on the way to making graphic design because it's all part of the process. I'm Sean Schumacher, and joining me today, a very special guest, a legend... Of the Portland design scene. He co-founded Plasm Magazine in 1991 and went on to run the award-winning creative studio Plasm Design, which has been listed as one of the 40 most influential design studios by ID Magazine and has been nominated for the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. He's worked with larger agencies, including Wyden and Kennedy and Liquid Agency, where he was brand content director. And he's worked with brands like Nike, MTV, Lucasfilm, and Fort George Brewery. It's Josh Berger. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. I it's didn't throw pleasure. my card this time. <laughs> pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, it's it's a pleasure to have you here. You are uh, you are you are not normally in Portland these days. Yeah, I don't live in the city full time. I live out in Sisters, and oh, uh, I come back regular uh, regularly. I mean, my business partner is here. I come uh, before the pandemic; it was once or twice a month. During the pandemic, it was not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, I think that's a good uh, you know, choice. Yeah, and then uh, and and since the pandemic has, uh, well, I wouldn't. I don't want to say it's over because. COVID is with us for a long time. Yeah, it's it's like one of those but, clocks at Pizza Hut that tells you it's always time for pizza and the hands <laughs> just spin around and around. Yeah. If anyone has a hookup on one of those, I want it. I want one of those so bad. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't I don't know where to find one of those. But um COVID does still uh, is it's always time for COVID. It's apparently. always time for COVID. But uh, I I have come in Come in about about once a month. For folks who don't know, Sisters is a really lovely like mountain town. Yes, in the Cascades, uh, about uh, three hours away from here. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. Bend is pretty close-ish, sort of, to the center of the state, about, and Sisters is a little up about, from that. About half hour from Bend. Yeah. yeah. So you know, you got a lot of stuff going on, and there's trees. Uh, there's a lot more sun. Really? Well, yes. I guess that is the you drier know, so side. That, yeah, well, you know, it's amazing when I come back here and it's, I could leave my house and it'd be 15 degrees and sunny and, you know, it's cold. Oh, I have no. a coat, but, and then I come to Portland and it's 40 degrees and raining <laughs> and <laughs> it is colder here than, I mean, it just chills you to the bone having that water in the air. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Humidity is the worst. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm a desert person, and I cannot stand the humidity. <laughs> it all it always reminds me when I come back. I'm like, oh yeah, that this. <laughs> <laughs> There's just sort so, of a sort of a gas of misery in the air. Well, I don't know if it's yeah, maybe I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't know. It does uh, increase uh, depression, I'd say, for some. Yeah, you know, especially this last vitamin D winter where so, we didn't have sunlight. I feel like for like 150 consecutive days. Yeah. 
That was out, and you're like, "What's that giant orb in the sky?" Ah, the, <laughs> the, the sky's on fire. Yeah, that's definitely what it felt like around May. So it's uh, quieter. <laughs> it's quieter and sunnier. It's so quite. It's nice. It's to a have it's that a, space. A very very chill place. Um, but you are you're kind of a kind of a legend of the Portland design scene. Not just kind of like really like Plasm is like one of the I feel like the anchor points to when people talk about Portland design. That's like what a lot of stuff in I think like the legendary era of Portland like was circulating around. Well, we that's uh, nice to hear. I mean, we should talk about the begin the early days and. You know, some of the things I brought were about those early days because it's Portland wasn't, you know, in 91, Portland wasn't a place where, uh, let's say, one would think as a center of cultural or design. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, happening. It, it wasn't that. So, you know, nobody was platform then either. I mean, you really, this was before the internet era right i mean some people had access to the internet but it was basically a handful of scientists you know and so uh most uh, media was controlled uh, by five corporations you wouldn't necessarily know what was happening in one city versus another city yeah there's there's big protest so 91 was the first gulf war that's a big protest in san francisco which you know i drove to I heard this thing was happening. You go down there with a group of people, and but you don't read about it in the local paper. No, in Portland, Oregon, right? They so <laughs> the you know, Oregonian it, conservative as always. Well, you know, it's, they report some things and they <laughs> omit others. You know, but this this is a this the founding print like founding principles of Plasm really. One of my housemates at the time, Andrew McFarland, said, oh, I, I heard about this meeting. Let's go. And, and uh, it was in what's now called the Pearl District. It wasn't the Pearl District then. But, no. you know, it, uh, there was a space there that uh, a small um, two-person design firm had in the uh, uh, called QED. And the person that called the meeting, Ruben Neisenfeld, was uh, w- really the, orig- the original spark, right, the catalyst. And uh, so he was part of uh, the early issues of Plasm. But uh, I went to a meeting, and some people came. Some people um, came and went, and some people came for one meeting. Some people stayed. I mean, I stayed for years, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but and we didn't know what we were doing. It was like it just it wasn't a call to have a magazine. It was like a group of artists that were looking for avenues of expression oh. that we couldn't find. So there was no we. Through these discussions in the early days, uh, decided to make a magazine, right? Really? So there were a whole there was a series of weekly meetings, and we were meeting there. We were also meeting at a place called the Last Thursday House, which I don't know. If, I mean, this this uh, the Last Thursday House is up on Northwest Twenty Fifth, but this was before Last Thursday was a thing. In fact, it's the oh yeah progenitor yeah. of Last Thursday. Like it didn't exist. Last first Thursday was first Thursday was a thing, but last Thursday was a house that a whole bunch of uh, artists and creative people lived in. Uh, Like Mark Lakeman was one of the uh, tenants of that place, and 
Neva Knott, uh, the first editor of Plasm, was also also lived there. And so we met also at the last Thursday house periodically. Uh, but um, that was way before the whole scene on, on Alberta Street and That's... that stuff. Yes. Huh. Uh, and I, pr- I, I had probably... no idea. Like, I would never have guessed that there was like a physical place that was not even related to Alberta that was sort of the, the genesis of that. Josh is going into the box. Yeah, I have some early stuff here. There's a box. Uh, Nico and I did a uh, uh, talk at uh, Kate's class one time, and we brought this box of plasm, which is in the PSU library. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't contain a few early things. It doesn't contain every issue. But I brought um, plasm number one here, wow. and, uh, which I'm going to give to you to add to this box. And oh here's a, here's an old old flyer. We didn't know what to call Plasm, and uh, this this is the one and only flyer for Drug Magazine. <laughs> I suggested Drug Magazine. I I should it, also know it's Drug. It's written here as Drug Magazine. Well, yes. There's there's there are a bunch of things in this issue. Like wow. magazine, we were calling it Magazine and Magazine, but there's some like even within the issue of plasm there's some like on the cover it's spelled with a z but other places it's spelled with an s yeah so there's <laughs> some uh... kind kind of medieval spelling fluidity I'm trying to find i have some other early stuff that i was going to bring or that i did bring to add to this box and one of the early things is this uh, flyer uh a benefit dinner for plasm magazine Spelled with an S, uh, at the last Thursday house. Wow. And there's the exact address. Is this is this before That's before like, the issue yeah. this before the magazine came out, yeah. Wow. And this also is before the magazine came out from Inverarity Media Foundation. This was uh, what Ruben had started and and Inverarity is an organization designed to provide a foundation and framework for the creation of works in single and multimedia formats by publishing only Portland's only no-fee artist directory in Variety provides a networking center for art. And then it goes on through the production of video, music, and print compilations. In addition to sponsoring varied performances, group showings, Inverarity will become the catalyst for a new movement that merges creative expression with commercial viability and social awareness. There's a bunch wow. of stuff, and it's interesting to look back on these kinds of things because... There was a, a statement in uh, some of these early documents, quality and conscience overall, right? This was, and you know, that's from 1991. That holds true today. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. we still, that's still a, a principle that we operate by. And it's still such a, such a is, unique principle, I feel like. Is, uh, here's another early flyer. That one has an S. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> This is lovely. I want to describe some of these for the for the listeners because these these are so these are so cool. Oh my god, this is gorgeous. Some of these I posted actually. Uh, our Instagram account was hacked, and I recently oh. started reposting things. So some of these early images can be found on that. Oh yes, Whatever. I will absolutely so, share a link. You know, um, so, you, so you could see some of these things. Yeah, because I mean, the so the drug magazine. Uh, magazine, I should say. Uh, this is a, I mean, it's it's 
it is a collage. I think it's, is it entirely paste up like collage? It, it is a collage. And this is the collage was this, this uh, woman, uh, Donna Martin made the collage and I designed the poster. So I did all the, all the, uh, uh, I printed out the type and cut it up and assembled it on top of there. But Donna was a friend of Ruben's and I met her at one, one time. There's like one time at, in actually pretty near to here where he was living and she handed me the collage and I oh, assembled it. So you, you didn't even, you added all the, all the type elements. Yeah. Oh, she wow. made a collage and, uh, I added things to it. Yeah. Um, and, and I used some of the elements of the collage on other things as well. Another poster or something. What it says on here, the creation of a new form of media drug beyond the constraints of a single medium, ideology, or individual. Gonzo journalism, guerrilla fiction, spontaneous layout, Xerox art, cut-ups, open forums, information sampling, media scans, idea propagation, and fornication. Ooh. Unnatural art, censored realities, taboos, evolving aesthetics, head launchings, pictorial infodramas, cartoon propaganda, and further... Are you interested in participating in the production of this publication? Contact Ruben. Was was this no, like no area code on the phone number? No, Notice. this is <laughs> you don't need an area code in those days in Portland, Oregon, or anywhere in Oregon. It's all one area code. Oh, before five oh three is an OG. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but yeah. like, were these going to be? Were these hung up on like telephone poles and stuff? I don't. I I think some of them probably were and hand handed out. But you know, it's it's. I'm not sure how how far that got distributed because it didn't uh, it didn't end up being the name. Yeah, you know, is this the only I mean, like drug? Yeah, oh, magazine? that's the only one. And then, wow. then, then this other flyer with the S. This yeah, which is so. Once we decide, then we decided on the name. We decided to actually print this thing in two color. Yeah, and uh, you know, so this this was. Um, Probably one of the first, uh, prior to the magazine, one of the first flyers. This was also an early uh, call to submit poster. Oh, my gosh. So part of our idea with this, like, with a magazine was to create this um, space, really, uh, where anything could happen. (laughs) And so we wanted it to be an open submissions format where artists represent other artists. And, um, you know, that that it wasn't controlled by... um, some other financial interest. Or, yeah. You know. You're not beholden to advertisers. Exactly, or, yeah. You know, mass media interests. Like, yeah. This and, can really be the voice of the, the scene as and, it's happening. And one of the, uh, in this first issue of the magazine, one of the early interviews, I didn't know any, how to interview people. I've done a lot of interviews over the years in the magazine, but the first interview I did was with um, Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys, and we can come back to that. Oh my gosh! That flyer later because there's a big <laughs> bunch bunch of mistakes. But in this mag in this first issue of the magazine, but oh my god, uh, Jello said something very prescient in that. Interview. I and I just uh. walked. I walked up to him with uh, uh, with Patrick Bardell uh, after uh, one of his spoken word performances. I think it was at the Pine Street Theater or La yes. Luna. Is it Pine, Pine Street? Street. Yeah, right on. I love Pine Street. The That's... early hours of Independence Day, nineteen ninety-one. Nice. Yeah. Well, Pine Street Theater. This this is a great place. Predates La Luna. It became La Luna, but it was full of uh, hang. I I don't want to get sidetracked 
here. I'm... This is the show of sidetracking. Okay. Well, it was full of all these. <laughs> his chandelier is hanging all over the place in that place. It was like looks like Sears and Roebuck or something, you know. But um, anyway, Jello said something in that interview that I thought was really important. He said, "Don't hate the media, become the media." And, oh, damn! All and right. So we did. You know, I mean, we really that embodied that idea. Yeah. That idea is uh, was was really powerful to us, and so that that was a founding principle of Plaza Magazine. Yeah, I, yeah so. God, I mean, and that's got to be such an important like affirmation this early in the project too to be like because well, i mean if this is the fall well issue, i think he was on to he was yeah. on you know he was on to there's a certain zeitgeist to that you yeah. know so it's 1991 it's the beginning of the digital age it's the internet isn't there yet uh but that idea don't hate the media become the media it's like okay yeah well that's what we're feeling and that's what when, when we were talking about artists representing artists yeah. and not finding the avenues of expression that we want for our own work uh and i personally think about it from a design standpoint you know okay i don't, don't just need to make um you know logos for developments or whatever but I think it's an affirmation even... is the right word. Yeah, it's a very powerful idea, yeah. and I think that's. Uh, uh, I've had a conversation with uh, Kate Bingman Burt, a, a public conversation that we did together one time, and she said Plasm was a permission giver. Yeah, and I think that's. Uh, you know, I feel like that's accurate, and I feel like it's. But I, I always, whether I'm working with, uh, uh, talking to students or working with interns or whatever, I always feel like it's. Um, you got to do what's inside of you. Yeah. You know, you got to, uh, when you're building a portfolio or whatever, you can put in work that you think people wa want to see, or you can put in the work that you love. And if you put in the work that you love, you're more likely to get the job you want. You're more likely to do the work you oh, want. God, yes. You're more likely to be fulfilled in your life. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, uh, but if you put in the stuff that you think people want to see, uh, you're less likely to do all of those things. Absolutely. Right? If you're if you're just living to you know what the algorithm wants, then that's going to make you miserable. Uh, whatever the algorithm is in your context. Um, that, that, yeah. I'm 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 leafing through. So this this first issue is very big. It is a well, it the, is a tall tall boy. Yeah. The first four issues were eleven by seventeen. Was the trim size. You know, it's a great format to design in. Oh, yeah. But uh, it also it inhibited us. And so we couldn't get the distribution that we wanted with that size because there literally were oh. stores where we wouldn't fit in their racks. Like you couldn't be in <laughs> Barnes & Noble because it doesn't, you know. So yeah. if you want national distribution, at, at least at that stage when we made the change, it was because of that. We changed the size to to nine by 12 after issue four. So when you, when you put out this first issue, like what was the reaction? Like, like I imagine, you know, probably like you were able to like see some results from it pretty quickly. There, there was, well, you know, it's, uh, we talked about the or Oregonian earlier, but they covered it, you know, it was news. So you, you Here, came let up. Let me show you this. Uh, so there's a, 
It's on our Instagram feed, but you can see that uh, the article in the Oregonian, not so standard issue, and so on. And so this is, uh, I mean, it's a full page in the Oregonian. Yeah, it's a long article with two photos. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's a bunch of other historic things that you can see on our, that we're posting on our Instagram feed or our online magazine. The stories are there as well. Yeah. And so this ad we'll have to talk about yeah. as well. This on the back cover, which uh, is my ad, but it's uh, it's uh, my logo isn't produced correctly in my ad. <laughs> so, um, well, how did that happen? Uh, well, I don't know exactly how it happened. <laughs> I I, sh- I should bring a. a... So I have a whole box. And that's a, that's another thing that I brought to talk about this uh see my um folder there is called formal chaos design this is that was the name of my uh design company as i if you flip it all the way over so there's the proper logo oh my god so so this that was a student work so you're you're doing formal chaos while you're at school where where are you going to school (laughs) i went uh, i i this was a school project, and I was I went to school at Mount Hood Community College. Nice. I have a, a two-year associate degree in graphic design. That's the extent of my uh, college education, and I got a good. I got what I needed there. Um, and one of the projects was, as probably most students in any design program, during the course of the study, you have to do some kind of self-promotion project, of whether it's a portfolio project or, you know, packaging for your own design company, whether it's a website, whatever you do. Yeah. So this was that project. And so my concept here is about creating order out of chaos, which I feel like there's something uh that it's something we do as humans but it's also something we do as designers right absolutely we put in we make systems for things but there's also got to be an embrace of um i mean every day you're walking around in the world it's chaos it is there's you can't control <laughs> i mean humans have this instinct for uh, trying to put things into order but at the same time uh you know nothing is fixed right yeah actually i have a favorite dalai lama quote he said uh it was a tweet actually <laughs> so just so it's, it's good to i didn't realize he had a twitter oh yeah you know and he gets more into those characters than anybody else <laughs> i'll tell you two words embrace uncertainty and Beautiful. right i can i've thought about that for years right but that, in a certain way, that is what formal chaos design yeah. is, the, is the idea of the balance between things happening naturally and things uh, and, and making, acting with intention. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, this uh, logo also is, it looks like it's digitally produced. Like well, there's, there's, some, there's some digital there. And so when I went to school, it, it uh, it was a. Uh, I feel fortunate for it to have been at that time. So this is eighty eight, eighty nine, yeah. something like that, ninety. So we were learning. We had to learn the manual skills. So you'd have a rapidograph pen, and you have to draw. And I brought some of these early. Like there's an early oh assignment God. from uh, that I I saved a couple of them. <laughs> but you can lift the 
the top and you have to wow. so you you have to do all this stuff manually but you but there was also a computer lab and you know in the computer lab there was photoshop 1.0 and all this page maker you know <laughs> and so there were some there were some beginning points and you know if you look at there were some wow. uh, late 80s stuff like if you look at April Greenman or you look at uh, early emigre fonts and 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 then you look yeah. at what what is done here with the word chaos it's treated in that way but uh, you can see all my early sketches <laughs> see these there are lots of sketches in there oh yeah of trying to figure out how that should work i really like this chaos like word mark it's got such a nice like sense of movement in it so here are a bunch of draw if you Look at these. There's tons of. Um, oh my god! So there's tons of drawn ones, painted and whatever, but then yeah. they're scanned in. Oh yeah, and you're like, essentially taking all these pieces, huh. eagle, I starting them. Use that Fort George work now. That typeface. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Recognize that. Like, but like this is. It's because you're like right there on the cusp of digital, like you're you're pulling digital elements together, and then like is the final the final result of that logo? It looks like kind of like yeah. photo ready art. Oh my gosh! With yeah. The red. Well, that's the final. That's how. See, there, there's a bunch of these. Like where I'm testing different colors. This is all. This is all hand done. Oh my god! Oh yeah. Here's, here's that's a, gorgeous. Here's some fun stuff too. Wow! 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 <laughs> Holy hell. Oh, my God. That's gorgeous. So that's all the working process things. Here's the final printed card there. That's beautiful. Oh, I'm just, I'm like so. Yeah, you can keep that one. None of the information is correct if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want a souvenir of my first business card, that's it. Oh, my God. Thank you. I, I will not send any mail to this P.O. box, uh, but I, I love that. This is really, really cool. I, I think it's also, like, such a good reminder. Like, I think a lot of our students, like, you know, they grow up in, you know, this digital era. And when they think of graphic design, they think of this purely digital enterprise. But, like, you're working back and forth between digital and physical. You're, like, you know, like, all of yeah. these letterheads, like, you are you are doing by hand with pen. Oh, yeah. Paper. That is the only way. Everything is by hand. Like, here's... Yeah. Okay, here's some other things I just found in this folder. So... These were um, uh, letters. Like I, when I was got out of school, I uh, I had this printed letterhead, and uh, to to try to get work, I was sending uh, mail to people. Here's a, here's a typewritten letter, and I would type these all, each letter by hand, on my typewriter. It was an electric typewriter, so it was high tech. <laughs> but you know, there I'm writing to Roger Bentley. And you're you're having to. This is a cold call letter, or I get referred from some, one person to another person. I don't know what it says in there, but is this like a draft of the letter? And you're like, that's pro that one because it's written all over. Yeah. It probably was a draft, but you know these letters. Like I'm a recent honors graduate of design program at Mount Hood Community College, and these are my instructors. And can I have a, an appointment? You know, and try to. <laughs> Try to get a, uh, you know, somebody to look at my portfolio. Yeah. Which, like, 
you were born in New York. Like, when did you yeah. come out to my to parents? Portland? My parents moved out. For, I was born in the Bronx, and they moved uh, when I was about seven to Brightwood. Uh, Where is Brightwood? Brightwood is on Mount Hood. Oh, so, so if you're driving up towards to go skiing or whatever, you drive through Brightwood before you get to Welch's and Zigzag and Rhododendron. And, <laughs> but the all mountain, the big towns, the mountain, th- those are the mountain towns, and what that's where I went to grade school and high school and uh, high school in Sandy. But and there's a name for people in Portland. If you li- at least there was then, if you live <laughs> up on the mountain, they call people that live in the valley flatlanders. <laughs> So the Flatlanders, (laughs) (laughs) I will come for you, Flatlanders. Well, there can only be one. You know, it's uh, you know, it's not too derogatory. It's pretty accurately descriptive in a way. But if you live on the mountain, then other people live in the valley. But if you live in Central Oregon, everybody over calls everything over here the valley. Right. That so, makes sense. You know, well, whatever. We're it's, we're trapped in fun. between the mountains here. Um this this sheet has like a bunch of rejected, I think, names for that could for be. This. I don't know. I haven't looked through this folder in a long time. Um one that you spend a lot of time on in the bottom half is Mr. New Potato design. Oh. There's a lot of potato based <laughs> no, ones. I don't know anything. I don't remember that at all. New potato design. Um I have no idea. <laughs> About that, yeah. Uh, God Incorporated. Um, uh, that's not going to work. That's th- there's some problems. Oh. Structural chaos, spelled K A O S. That's a great one. See, that's closer to f- so that. That's, that's a getting. Pre- that's a precursor to formal chaos, I think. Because that's definitely structure. Yeah. And then, like, probably you're you're working your way down, and and they are getting like more wild. But like right up here at the top, there's like Jay Burger Associates, like. Yeah. <laughs> Just there's yeah. kind of a gradient of yeah. Well, you know, it's like any. I mean, the creative process is always uh, it's always the same and always different, right? You, yeah, you got to start somewhere, and uh, you know, it doesn't matter where you start. But the point is, and if you don't know where to start, the thing to do is to start. Yeah, right. So you start somewhere, and sometimes it's the first idea. Sometimes it's the hundredth. Yeah. But the, the thing kind of teaches you where to go with you it. You have to learn, and you follow. Uh, this is uh, something I learned from uh, from John Cage. Actually, is this idea of following fragments? Like if you're painting a painting, you know if it's a good brushstroke, and then you continue and you add to it. You don't need to know the end result. If I'm designing yeah. something, I try a typeface. If it doesn't work, I change it. If I make a mark, I may not like the mark. You got to start with zero, though. A blank page. Yeah. Um, so this is your school project. After you're graduating, you're trying to, like, you know, make a go of it. Yeah. And I got involved with this group of artists and, you know, we uh, and started working on what became Plasm Number no. One. And, yeah. you know, I designed, I, as I said, mentioned earlier, I did an interview. I wrote, there's some pieces that I wrote in there or co wrote in there. And so I was part of it and part of this group that, birthed this thing that brought this into existence and there's some advertising in there i don't know that any of it was paid for but you know it's usually (laughs) it's i mean people did work and then they you know uh help make it happen and so yeah take an ad we have some so there was the idea that we would be selling ads 
whether we were actually selling them with the first issue or not is a different. And so Ruben said, well, you take a half page. And so I designed a half page ad and uh, he put it on the back cover. And I don't know who decided what goes where. Uh, and if if I had known I had the back cover, I would have designed for the whole space <laughs> as opposed to having this half page on the back cover. But also the thing is the the logo is fucked up. Yeah, like it it's... didn't. Uh, the word chaos didn't print. No, not at all. So you know, however, whether I screwed up or whether somebody else, actually, a number of the things that I created for this issue uh, have errors in them. Yeah, a, b- a bunch of them. And that um, errata sheet that you yeah, uh, find at the beginning of that, that, which I titled Inadvertent Circumcisions. <laughs> <laughs> so those are those are the articles. Uh, all of those articles I designed. Bad Cop, No Donut, and then Jello Interview, <laughs> and uh, Royd Patrol, I think it's called. Yeah. So Royd Patrol was by An- Andy. Andy was um, my housemate who introduced me to this thing to begin with. Those are the pieces that got cut off of what's in the magazine. And so I guess if anybody bought this issue after it was on newsstands, it might have included this little sheet. I, I assume it's after it went to press that oh, yeah. realized all this stuff. Did, yeah. did you have to like hurriedly... like? print a bunch of these and like cut them down and stuff them in they were already out the door you know it's like i said if if somebody later bought a back issue or like i brought this issue for uh this box that goes in the psu library yeah i'm gonna stick one of those in there because it's something that we created and it's part of it but uh most people didn't probably get it and they just the article ended and (laughs) you know it's i i don't know i was what software I was using versus what went, you know, out to press. And the way things went to press then was much different. I mean, you have to get a Linotronic output or RC paper, they paste it up, strip it at the printer. And, you know, there's a bunch of processes and some, I I wasn't involved in the print production of this issue at that stage. A much more elaborate thing back in the day. Well, it was, but later, later issues I was more involved in those in looking at those proofs and get like you learn as you go. Absolutely. I mean, and and it's like with anything uh, with design, you can learn at your own expense or you can learn at somebody (laughs) else's. You know, if you if I got a job and I was in a you know, I would there might be other you know, if I was in a uh, working at an agency or if I had a job at Widen in those days, uh, there would have been people that knew about product, you know, that, that there would be checks and balances. Yeah. And I'm learning. That's what I mean by learning at others. So I may not know everything when I get this job, but I'm learning and I'm within the boundaries of these um, constructs. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, instead, I mean, it's all kind of growing, you know, growing up in public in a way. Absolutely. Well, and it's like, had you even done like a major print run of a thing like this before? Oh, no, I, I'd never designed a magazine and we, none of us had ever produced a magazine. Uh, we didn't know anything about the magazine business. <laughs> <laughs> All we knew is that don't hate the media, become the media, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All we knew is that, okay, if we want, we want to, you know, we knew that this was a means of distribution of information. And, you know, we studied all kinds of, like, everybody was part of this group came from, brought their lived experience and their learned experience and whatever. And 
you know, we studied like I, I we're reading all uh, all kinds of magazines or reading about magazines like Transition or The Situationists or any number of and there were a lot of Xerox zines too. Yeah. You know, people were using Xerox in those days, so you know there's a lot of photocopies of zines were around too in a certain way. You know, so there's also posters like how you know people putting up broadsheets. There's a, so there's a rich hi- history of art movements and uh, you know small groups of people all over the world that create and distribute things that are meaningful to them. Yeah. So this is the tradition we were operating from. It's like, okay, we need to do And we're trying to learn it as we go. You know, when we, in terms of how this was distributed, we didn't have, we didn't know anything about distribution. <laughs> I mean, it's, we, and, was... and the pricing of it, like, okay, it's $2 cover price. We want it to be affordable for artists. That was the, that was the only driver of that <laughs> cover price. And, you yeah. know, and it's gone up since then <laughs> you know uh, well, i don't second, think i can get a bottled water here on campus yeah, for two dollars pro- anymore well maybe not but it so you know it's two dollars and then the next issue was it had probably i mean that that's probably in there it's had probably tw- twice as many pages to t- 225 and then the third issue we were um uh, offset litho, so it was more expensive. We went up to three twenty, three twenty-five or something, you know. And and the fourth issue, it was like that cover price. We printed twenty-five hundred copies of uh, of Plasm Four. It was three dollars and twenty-five cents on the cover price, I believe, three twenty-five. And even if we sold every single copy, we still wouldn't have broken even. Oh God! It's like. <laughs> Okay, well, something you know, something is wrong with this. It's, and these early issues, they weren't. They were, they were paid for by us. I yeah. Mean, uh, one one individual in our group had enough money to pay the printing bill, and everybody else in the group agreed to pay back in equal proportions this loan that he made to pay the printing bill. And so we did that for first four issues. Did it start to become worrisome as? As I imagine that bill got higher. Well, it's just a, uh, you know, it's a wake up call. I mean, we, we were, a lot of it was done by intuitions like, okay, well, this costs more. We better. And like I said earlier, magazine business is a shitty business. It's, it's not like once you start to get into it, it's uh, the, the, the distribution. So just you find distributors for your magazine. Yeah. You could consign the issues. Like some of them, we would just walk into stores and say, would you carry the magazine? And that's how, like, there was Durst Thriftway, which is now, I think, Trader Joe's uh, on Crossing the Blue Moon. But that was a place that carried us. And then uh, Rich's Cigar Store carried us. And, you know, some local places we walk in and and so, yeah, we'll we'll take it. We'll give you half uh, of what we sell. And distributors will do that too. Once you find distributors, there were no official distributors for this first issue. Um, oh wow! But uh, distributors give you a half, but they only give you half of what they sell. So you send them one issue; they'll give you fifty percent of the cover price of what they sell, and then they'll pay you after you send them the second one. So you're into it. If you're a quarterly magazine, you know, you could be, it could be like six months before right. you see, God. you realize that your sell through was 10% and 
oh. <laughs> or whatever, or fifty percent. Oh. So, you know, it, it's a it's a very difficult structure, and this is why magazines, uh, such as you see them now, are half advertising because the advertising is what pays the bills, or where you buy a subscription to Spin magazine, twelve issues for twelve dollars, it doesn't even cover the fucking postage, right? <laughs> And yeah. and that tells you something. It's only about the advertising. Well, they're also That's hoping they... and praying that you forget that you're subscribed to Spin Magazine well, and you can take that $96 bill for the second year that they send you. There are a lot of levers there, but the, there's also, uh, I mean, a lot of those publishers publish multiple magazines. And so Condé Nast can say, I'll to an advertiser, I'll sell you details, but uh, you also get to buy Men's Health for... And you're buying this block and it's, you know, so as an independent publisher, you don't have any of that. No. And and you don't have the audience, right? (laughs) So, you know, there's, it's hard. I mean, it changed over time and the history of Plasm is, I mean, we learned each, each issue, you know. So after issue four, you start to, that's where the rescale happens. We, we change the size, yeah, yeah, to nine by 12, the the second issue, I remember. I remember there was we didn't have a phone other than we had one uh, phone number, which was a voicemail, so you could leave a message on the voicemail. And I remember checking the voicemail uh, one time after issue two came out, and it was Doug Bigert from Tower Records. Today's your lucky day. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, so, so this guy. No, ta- thanks. No, but I, well, maybe it wasn't exactly that voice, but <laughs> something like that. I remember he saying, today's your lucky day, but Tower Records picked us up. You oh, know? shit. So in those, so it was, a, he walked into Rich's cigar store, yeah. found a copy of Plasm and wanted to distribute it nationally in Tower. And that Damn. was a big deal then, yeah. you know? And so he, that was, became our first national distribution. And that's a cool. After issue two. That's a, like. You know? You t- that's Tower at their height of power, they, where they're like the, the place that everyone goes to. It was a big deal. That, yeah. And so that was one. And then we found other distributors as we were continuing. You know, we looked and uh, there was a magazine called Mondo 2000, which we were fans of in oh, those yeah. days. And that was kind of a precursor to Wired. It's more psychedelic and uh, involved Timothy Leary and a number of other <laughs> And we we inter- we actually did a ad trade with them and interviewed one of the editors. Are you serious? It was published in issue four of the magazine. So they published their distributors in the front of their magazine and in their masthead. Anarchy Magazine published their distributors in the front of the magazine. So we start calling these places, oh, sending yeah. them samples and getting picked up by different distributors. And eventually it led to, you know, okay, well, if you want to grow, you got to fit into the shelves. Yeah. And so. I, I imagine, like, too, once you're national, like, you've got a little bit more money rolling in. Like, well, the, probably not actively losing money. Well, I mean, we, <laughs> we, we realized that, okay, well, what we were doing was not sustainable. And uh, Patrick didn't continue, I think, after issue four either. So he was not going to loan money to print another issue. Oh, we no. Changed, we changed the size. Then the, the all all bunch of things changed because the 9 by 12 was as big as we can get and get it four up instead of two up on a press sheet, right? So it was a little oversized and economized certain things but then the draw from distributors was way bigger yeah right so okay so now we're print we need to print 7500 not 2500 is like okay well or whatever it was i can't remember the numbers but 
so the scale changed. And then on the other side, you got, well, we, we're distributing more. We're now we got to make a media kit. Let's sell, let's try to sell more ads. Let's try to sell national ads. Yeah. And so there's all these things that we're trying to do to support our magazine habit, basically, you know, and early in those days, I think it's maybe 93, we started uh, creating and selling typefaces. And so those $60 on a floppy disk, this came about really, uh, Pete McCracken became involved in those, uh, probably issue three, I think, so about 93, we started collaborating. And that was one of the things that he brought to it and was selling, uh, so, you know, the typographic experimentation, the design experimentation that was happening in the magazine that enhanced it, but 60 bucks on a floppy disk didn't pay us to be there, let alone pay the printing bill, right? <laughs> and so eventually we started uh, Plasm Design, so that's about 95, yeah. I think. And uh, the design firm has supported our magazine habit, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah, <laughs> like like almost like a drug habit in a way, you know. You know, the magazine. I think we we used it as a printed laboratory, and yeah. we experiment with form and process and content. And whether our clients know it or not, they benefit from those experimentations because it results in better work. Yeah, and the typography ex- experimentation and creating of typeface like the turns into, well, we make custom logos, we make custom identities, or even custom fonts for people like, okay, we didn't the corporate typeface for Nike, but this is many years later, this is not $60 on a floppy disk anymore, you know? That's what I mean, you learn at your own expense, or you learn, but, and you got to just do these things to see, you don't know what it's going to lead to, but unless you try something, unless you risk failure, you're not going to succeed. I mean, did it feel at times like I'm frustrated with this? I want to stop doing this. Oh, like, there are plenty of times with the magazine. It's been uh, plenty of times where it's <laughs> like, uh, you know, and yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean, it's never made any money, you know. Even to, but now we don't print it without if it's going to lose <laughs> unless it's going to break <laughs> even, right? But you, it's you, a different you do the numbers era. Ahead diff- of time. Yeah, it's a different era and things. Things are different. Yeah, you know, but uh, the value of print is different now. I mean, it's like so a, much. the 1991. Nobody was platform. You couldn't blog or put. A, you don't have Instagram. You don't have any of that. There was no um, internet that was widely accessible. No, you know, it was probably until 94, maybe when it started to get to be AOL and that, that kind of stuff. But technology changes, and the role of print changes absolutely I mean, it used used to be it's about immediacy of information and now um there's nothing that's going to be more uh, immediate than the phone in your pocket but now i think the role of print is about exclusivity i've been thinking so, the same thing and like, we've we've been thinking that way for at least a decade yeah. where it's like okay now when we print an issue everything that's in the magazine does not go online yeah because i want the experience of what somebody holds in their hand to be unique and it's a, it's a special thing. Like I, um, you mentioned Rich's cigar shop earlier, which like I I don't know if is maybe it's not as much of a thing in other cities, but Rich's here. Like the reason I feel like ninety percent of the people who went to it went to it 
was magazine. Sure. Yeah, it's a magazine. Well, it was a magazine paradise. They don't have magazines anymore. And I, I remember huh. going in there like six months into the pandemic seeing all their looking for a cigar yes <laughs> well like that was the almost the saddest part like the the you know they have like these huge magazine racks that are all beautiful and wood and then they have like a kind of a cigar like uh you know case area behind a you know a, a little counter um and the woman like as soon as i walked in intercepted me because she knew what i was there for and it was not cigar <laughs> Uh, <laughs> she was well, like, "Well, that's unfortunate." Yeah, uh, I, I know you're probably here for the magazines. We don't, we don't have magazines anymore. But would you like a cigar? No, actually, no, thank you. But like thinking about that in relation to like you know teaching print design too, like you know maybe print like is less of a mass media thing than it was. Although you know you can still go to Fred Meyer as I did like a week ago and pick up the harry styles commemorative magazine <laughs> don't know who's putting that out but all right i wonder if they have a special issue on how he spit in the other guy's lap who knows um huh. but it's they, an insert of some kind but it, it's so much more special to like well uh, touch a thing and i like, mean we're we're analog beings and it's are. an analog medium yeah so and digital just doesn't last i mean like it's, a, it's ephemeral in a different way. Yeah. I mean, these print objects are also ephemeral, but uh, yeah, digital is like quick. It's quick and it, it makes sense for lots of things, like if speed is your jam. But like, I'm never going to be able to hold a PDF in my hand like I'm holding <laughs> issue one of Plasm right here. It's never going to feel the same way. That makes this all the more special, like that there's this like tactility and this I didn't realize that this episode was just going to be a love song to print. <laughs> well, uh, apparently that's I mean, the mood that I'm in. It's it's really it's really really magical. So that's the second issue. Oh, it's got the third and the fourth. So these are the first four right there. Wow. So already like already with issue 2, like you're like you've it's completely lot, changed the bigger. aesthetic. It's a lot bigger. Yeah. Well, you know there's and my my role in the magazine my uh title is art director and uh, that's uh, so I guess I I always was I I started to ask other designers to design pages and so I would some I would design some other people would design some people that were uh, uh, you know part of our collective we call ourselves a media cooperative plasma media cooperative and uh, we never talked about the, the founding of the name here but this this we eventually we did talk about drug earlier but plasm was the winning name and in that first issue there's it's spelled in both an s and a z yeah and, um it comes from the word protoplasm so building blocks of the universe kind of idea oh so uh, that's that's where that's from. So really thinking of this as like kind of almost foundational for like exposing this art scene to to a broader audience. It it was for it was for our uh, we we were looking for avenues of expression for our work, but also for other um, 
other artists yeah. and design and all of it kind of at an equal level. So whether it's a, a submission that comes in the mail, whether it's something that we create or whether it's um, uh, something that, uh, uh, you know, we interview somebody that's famous or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, that or they contribute in some way. But we want to present all those things on an equal level. And it's always been that way. It's about creativity. Yeah. Um, yeah. As as I'm fold, as I'm uh, leafing through this, like there we've see that you've definitely is, got some real ads that's, in here. That's the, that's my there's my second ad, which the word chaos actually shows up in. Yes, uh, and you've got the tagline for it. You want the same old shit? Then don't call me. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I guess that's true. Um. I- I guess that's that's accurate. I, I bet that's a good pitch for the audience of this, though. Like, I don't know if I ever got a call from that or not, but <laughs> but whatever, you know. I mean, I I have to say that um, I, my all of my my career wouldn't be my the career that it is without having uh, created this thing and done this work because it's led to everything else. It's like uh, so. I'll, I'll give you. An example of the student work, like I was showing these um, typewritten letters I was sent to every, like, I mean, I wanted to work at White and Kennedy, yeah. but, and I dropped my portfolio off there and I distinctly remember getting the come pick it up call, like no interview, Whoa. no, no, nothing, no, That's no, nothing, cold. just come pick it up. You know, and uh, it was years later, actually, that I, as art director of the magazine, I was getting different designers to asking different designers to work on things. And uh, I had a mutual friend who was uh, who knew John Boiler, who was art director there at Wyden and Kennedy and at the time and said, well, maybe John would design some surprises. John had seen the magazine. He picked it up at you know richest cigar store or whatever and uh and he wanted to design spreads and that was great and the first spread he designed here is in issue three actually uh which we made it's the center center spread wow and i have the uh, original mechanicals for that as well you know it's pasted up so i was in there meeting with him at wyden one day and he asked if i could help out in the studio and i proceeded to do that for four or five years wow right? so I never showed a portfolio no. in that case but in all those years uh, at Wyden and working at Wyden, I, I came to see the line of portfolios outside Susan Hoffman's door, for example, you know, and realized, <laughs> well, a lot of people actually want to work here. And so, you know, it wasn't like a personal thing or something that yeah. I didn't get an interview there out of school. It's just that, I mean, but this is an illustration of like, if I hadn't made this, if I hadn't been working on this magazine, involved in this yeah. magazine, doing what I was doing, following my own intuition my own creative bliss then um i never would have been standing in that place and that that is such a such an amazingly good lesson for folks who are just starting out in this field like you may have some goal that you are like wanting wanting to achieve but like if you build your own thing if you like write your own story you may get that goal eventually too well you got to follow your bliss yeah um, and you got to put it out there yeah 
If you don't, nobody knows. And it's like, you know, the person that you may be, like, interviewing with, like, may just end up being, like, one of many contributors to the project yeah. that you're working on because they like it. Um, you're in the you're in the plasm space. What is it like to be in that space, and where do you go from there? Well, we needed to eventually have a space. I mean, in the early <laughs> the early days, that we were, as I said, we were meeting in people's houses, and then the first plasma office was in the sun porch of my uh, rented house, and you know, it was like we could have two people sitting in there at a time, and you know, we had. Uh, I think, you know, whatever my computer was, was uh, like a Quadra, I think, a Mac Quadra. Oh, sure. I can't remember what, what it was by then. but Top of the line, I believe. Yeah, right. Well, at one point, but <laughs> yeah, not when I was using it, but... <laughs> But, you know, we made, we continued, and then we took over a, we found um, there was a space, uh, I think it was Vita Gallery, that, so the, the Myler building became our home. Now it's a Salvation Army or Youth uh, building. It's kind of on uh, Southwest 9th, about a block from Powell's. It's kind of a wedge-shaped building there. Oh, yes, I know the one. So they had like a an office they weren't using. So we took over that office and, and moved all the stuff out of my sun porch into that <laughs> office, which was barely bigger. But um, <laughs> but then uh, then we ended up getting uh, like uh, there was another gallery there, Gallery 8. It was called Number 8. And there were a lot of cool things in that building. Yeah. Downstairs, uh, the coffee shop Umbra Penumbra, amazing space, which we've had some sh shows in there, and there were p other shows in there. There's great recording that uh, just last year Larry Crane remastered of Elliot Smith that you can find from Umbra Penumbra. It was great while it lasted, you know? <laughs> but uh, um, this is probably 94 and 95. We started making um, work as Plasm Design. Yeah. You know, and some of that uh, grew out of our magazine kind of heritage I brought a couple things Ooh. I guess it's about errors but it's also about process but you know we end up being myself like a lot of people uh, that were in the early founding days had because uh, it was all volunteer we couldn't pay ourselves to be there yeah we couldn't pay for the magazine let alone pay ourselves <laughs> let alone pay anybody else you know, yeah. everything is volunteer. Every contribution was submitted. You know, we made it ourselves. We did it ourselves. And there's no money at all in it. There's this juncture where um, really a lot of the original founding members had gone. And it was uh, myself and Pete and Nico in 1995. And we threw all of our work into a box and silkscreened the word plasm on the outside <laughs> and called it a portfolio. <laughs> You know, and and we started sending it out. Yeah, and we start and we started getting work. We got uh, we got this uh, Nike job for the U.S. Open. Some, but they wanted uh, graphics for it, and and with a specific New York attitude, and so we uh, and we had bought this this uh, Xerox machine at auction, Oregon State auction. It was like a two hundred dollars <laughs> Xerox machine, and it was great. Except that all the shit that would come out every time you photocopy, you couldn't get a clean photocopy on it, right? It was uh, it was fucked up. But we used that, and so you know we probably should have billed them for the Xerox machine we used it so much on that job. But 
I mean, it was only 200 bucks, but we Xerox a lot of things. And then what you're holding here is this is a Widen project that actually we all worked on, all three of us and a number of other people. And John Boiler was the art director of this uh, campaign. This was for the Olympics for for Nike 96. Oh, and wow. these books, Enrique, who was... He was a student of mine at OS uh, or at at, P, at uh, Mountain Hood Community College because I went back there and taught a little bit. He was a student, and then he became a Plasm intern, and then he became a, a Wyden and Kennedy employee, and he's uh, amazing creative director now. He put together these books of all the scraps from making all these ads. Oh, so, so this so, is these are just the leftover. Just the leftover. Pets. Okay, there's big piles of. You know, oh it's it's Wyden had gotten uh, at that point. They were getting out all those drafting tables out of the studio oh. and putting computers in, and they had to bring them back because because <laughs> we had to <laughs> cut everything up manually and Xerox everything and paste it all together to make this work. You know, I so. mean, the the future is almost always at least partially the past. Well, you, got, you it gotta contains it. Yeah. Uh, this is yeah. This is such a gorgeous piece. So like, this is the the thing itself, right? Yeah, the, those were those were inserts. There were a series of inserts. This was related to to the uh, Olympics, uh, 19, Nike doesn't want to sponsor the Olympics, and so the writing. Ernest Lupinacci is the writer. John Boiler is the art director, and Pete and Nico and I all and other people. But the three of us Xerox all of this stuff. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's. There's 10,000 pounds of Xerox on yeah. this. There's but a lot of Xeroxing. The inside is just like collage city. Like really, yeah. really cool with like um, some like the way that you're using the bottom of the shoe is <laughs> fairly psychedelic too. Oh, he's stuck it on the, stuck it on the uh, Xerox machine. Yeah, but it's you like, know. it's very bold. And then like the... The the scrap piece is uh is this really lovely like eleven by seventeen uh kind of uh long book. So you get like these like twenty six are are these twelve by eighteens? No, they're eleven by seventeens. Um but like this long, long book. So they're all different. So... Whoever has one of those, it's different than that. I mean it's whatever stuff was lying around yeah um but it's it's like all the messy scrap of what came out of the copier and it is it's gorgeous yeah and there's like cut out bits from where you've actually used stuff for the ads that's also like such a cool way of like taking what would otherwise just be like stuff that's thrown away and making something like beautiful out of it. Yeah, well, keepsake. Who but... who got those? Like well, they... whoever was working on that or whoever picked one up. Oh, you know, just... it's just yeah, like it's just people in the studio at the time. Yeah, that's beautiful. Is there anything else from the the boxes and stuff that you want to talk about? Yeah, I guess it depends on what you ask for three mistakes. And so <laughs> I, th- I mean, there are more than three mistakes in here, but they're all kind of interconnected. So one is the ad on the back cover of the issue one. And, yeah. You know, and then uh, I brought this box from a, a John Cage exhibit. And then I brought that print there by Heather Watkins with the word clarity on it. And... Uh, she had a um, tumor behind her eye, and she had made that, and she left that in my um, hospital room when I was, because uh, I was recovering from a bike accident that gave me a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. And so this was a 
about 10 years ago and so that's uh that was another that's another accident that uh, I thought that would it's not a design accident, but maybe it's a design accident. I don't know. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's an accident. It's life changing. It happened to me, and it changed. Yes, it definitely changed my life. Yeah. I, uh, so, I thought I'd bring that as well. Yeah, that's a beautiful like reminder of you know like the 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 spirit of like getting through it. There's like a nice little hole in the middle too, so you can look through it. Yeah. Well, I apparently I my wife tells me I stared at that a lot. That uh, piece of art yeah. when I was in the hospital, uh, but uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I'm happy to talk about that and how it impacted yeah. my work or not work, but um, it's probably a little bit of both. I know? I mean yeah, but I... yeah. So there's that. I mean and, and uh, yeah. Where did that? Yeah, like what? I mean, I know you you had you had a long process of of recovering from that and like what was that like what was the impact like initially and then kind of moving forward well um i've done a i did a talk about this and you can find this online where it's um it's i call it doing better how i broke my brain and changed my mind yeah so i had a long to-do list before the accident i was riding to work i was working at Liquid, and it was a Windows, I was in charge of global retail launch for Windows 8 or whatever it was, some, it was a Microsoft product, and I didn't make it to the meeting, Yeah, you know, but um, it's the same bike ride I take every day, but I had a new bike, and the brakes worked a lot better than the old one, where, Oh. <laughs> and apparently I went over the handlebars and but anyway what did I uh, I woke up in the hospital with uh, a much shorter to-do list yeah like literally three, wake up more I mean that was one of the items on the to-do list yeah. there were only like three items you know so I had to relearn a lot of things to uh, relearn how to read to walk to you know yeah do everything and uh, yeah, it's a long. It was a long road. It, it, I imagine it clarified your priorities in your life a lot too. Well, it it definitely it changed them yeah. for sure. I mean, it's not. Uh, it shouldn't take a near death experience to uh, make one realize what every moment is worth. But that's the effect it had on me. Yeah, it's a big meaningful thing. Well, it's life, right? Yeah. You know, it's like it's like this thing. It's like, well, what do you, you know, is everything on the to-do list actually something you need to do? God, no. You know? It's, yeah. I mean, there's so, I, I like, I I mean, I, I haven't gone through, you know, something that life-changing myself, but, like, I would imagine you really interrogate things probably more as well, to what their value is to you. Well, I certainly have more um, intentionality yeah. about that. But, you know, it's it's different. I have different, it's different energy. So it's interesting to try to make, uh, start making design work again. And a friend, uh, Jeff Faulkner, gave me a poster to design for a talk he was doing. And that was, uh, so there were things, like there were steps. And, and it was great to, like, that my employer actually at the time, which, which was, was, uh, 
uh, they take out in this uh, disability insurance. Oh, so yeah, there's yeah. a disability policy on every person, and I it's the it's insurance that actually works. So I was getting my pre-accident salary uh, in you know for a certain amount of time, and then when I could start going back to work. If I could work ten hours out of forty, then they the the disability insurance would pay the other thirty. Yeah, and so it was a, a graduated, as my speech language pathologist used to say, graduated return to normal activity. That's what you used to say, and that, so that's what it took. You know, I mean, it's just okay. I had to learn how to get around in the wheelchair, and then I had to learn how to. I mean, and my my son at the time, three years old, we would read Hop on Pop together, and we were both at the same level oh. right <laughs> you know yeah it's, uh, um, so yeah you know it's, it's a progression of thing it's interesting to have to go through that and you really come to realize how much uh, we take for granted how much we lay so young children they're they nap right yeah because they're taking in so much and when i after i was out of the hospital i was at home care and I just going on my back porch I could only stay out there for a few minutes because of the bright colors the leaves rustling the whatever is overwhelming I was sleeping 12 hours a day and 12 hours and taking a nap you know yeah <laughs> you're doing you're doing what you need to do to like yeah well that's right you honor the healing power of sleep yeah is, uh, Jill Bolt Taylor says. Your body is telling you a message that you need to pay attention to, and you cannot ignore it. Well, that's right. It's, uh, yeah, I think when, I mean, it's the same, like, I, I had COVID back in July, and I've read about it, and a lot of people that end up with long COVID, these are people that don't rest when they're sick. Interesting. <laughs> people with long COVID don't rest when they're sick. Well, that bodes so very poorly go. for me. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's an interesting. Should, maybe uh, this is my wake-up call. Uh, well, it's an interesting thing, but if an animal is injured, they just lay down in the forest and they can sleep for days. Yeah. And they get up because the body is healing itself. The body knows what to do. The animal knows what to do. We humans... Our our brains are bossing us around. Yeah, you know, we, we have like, a magical power uh, to delude ourselves that nonsense means stuff. <laughs> yeah, you got to push some more pixels around. <laughs> I need to fill out some more forms. Gotta These check. forms are so important and right. won't immediately be discarded. Got to check your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I've looked at the main feed, but what's happening in reels? <laughs> That's where all the real action is. That's got to be such a hard thing to go through, but like it's remarkable, like that you you did get through it and like you fought your way back here. Well, um, it's a combination of all kinds of things that allowed it. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm very fortunate. Like the bleeding in my brain stopped. There's I was in decent health. I was able to, uh, you know, somebody was sitting on their porch and called. The you know paramedics or whatever you know yeah. I got to OHSU and time you know there's so many factors I was in reasonably good health I had decent diet uh, uh, I had the love and support of my family I, I had community around me yeah. I mean there was uh, amazing community of support there was 
Yeah, get well, Josh. Sign hanging in reading frenzy. I have a picture of. There's a, mm. a Pika did a uh, a fundraiser to pay for uh, some of the medical costs that weren't covered. So yeah, <laughs> the accident happened to a lot of people, really. Yeah. And and I really value all that support and that. So all of that is true. And if I didn't have an optimistic attitude, none of it would have mattered. Right? Yeah. So. You know, I had to do the work, but I needed to have this infrastructure of support. Nobody gets through uh, full of this life on their own. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you can't do it yourself. God, yeah. I mean, there's so many broader lessons in that, too. Like, community and being around people who care about you is so important and who are, like, interested in the things that you're interested in to help buoy you. But also, like maintaining positivity and like fighting for you know your life and what you love like that's what keeps you going absolutely yeah, yeah. it has a way of prioritizing things absolutely <laughs> um and considering the the strange times that we find ourselves in like it's you know good to keep those things in mind well there's yeah there's always uh, uh there's a lot of things contesting for your attention today and so discernment is a very important value yeah you know and acting with intention right absolutely yeah the old (laughs) it's kind of an old printers at at you know measure twice cut once (laughs) but you know i've never believed that measure five times cut five times yeah but you know you can do yeah you can apply that to a lot of things yeah that idea um, should we talk about this John Cage box too? So this is, this box is from a show that I saw in 1994. So this is really formative and inspirational for me in terms of my design work, my, my work, how I approach art directing and curating with Plasma Magazine and really all projects, uh, but it's deeply informed me. But so my mom had moved down after years in Oregon down to Santa Barbara tired of the rain and when I would go down to visit her she'd pick me up in LA and we'd or drop me off in LA if I was flying in there and sometimes we would go to a show and so we went to Mocha and it was this John Cage show mm. and it totally blew my mind um it was the one of his last one of his last exhibits before he passed but he had um mapped the xy coordinates on all the gallery walls and then instructed the gallery staff to throw the I Ching at specific intervals. And the I Ching would then direct them where to move paintings, where to exhibit paintings or work. <laughs> so it was it was unbelievable. So and and there were some things that would never be shown, that, that were never shown. There were some things that never moved, some things that were up by the ceiling, others down by the floor. Just completely gamifying and it was randomizing. Random, yeah. Wow. Principles random. So, and he said, uh, "We're creating the parameters to allow for anything to happen. We Beautiful. are creating." And so, this idea, I came back like, it's. I was totally energized by this idea, and I think that's what I mean. That that's what this magazine is. Yeah, you know, that's that's what I've tried to. I bring that idea into many projects. Yeah. And that's such a valuable thing, like, you know, 
there's there's so much in this world that is like structured and is meant to be a certain way and like to have a space where you can just like do something weird and fun is like huge and you know to embrace i mean to get back to the idea of uh chaos yeah you know the this is the, the principles of random is really and this box this is the uh catalog for the show and it's done <laughs> in the same way there are all these little as you're going through it there are all these little artifacts and books and booklets and things and they're all just thrown in this box yeah loose translucent sheets of paper so they're just kind of like it, it's even hard to kind of discern one from the other well they're all they're all different and they're all unique and they're and you can put them back in a different order that was on the cover i think that particular one but yeah so anyway deeply informative and inspirational thing for me and so 20 years later um, my mom sent me a book on john cage a, a, a biography of him called mm-hmm. where the heart beats and this may have been when I was recovering. I don't know that I was reading it, but yeah. I'm trying to remember when I, but this book totally blew my mind in a new way. So I'm just going to read you one uh, passage that comes from that book. Yeah. He says, the first question I ask myself when something doesn't seem to be beautiful, the first question I ask is, why do I think it is not beautiful? And very shortly I discover that there is no reason. If we can conquer that dislike or begin to like what we dislike, then the world is more open. Mm. That path to increasing one's enjoyment of life is the path I think we'd all best take. To use art, not as self-expression, but as self-alteration to become more open. Wow. So. Damn. <laughs> that's now that's not now my uh, goal in life. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I never had a goal in life before, but uh, to be more open and to embrace what you don't like, yeah, uh, you know, it's all part of the world. Like, it's, yeah. So anyway, that twenty years later, reading this book blew my mind in a whole new way. So that's my new uh, John Cage or newer. A good thing for us all to kind of bring with us, like being open and and finding new things, like it's easy making to... space for change. It's easy to be dismissive, yeah. uh, particularly in today's world, uh, whether it's politics or whatever. It's easy to dismiss entire people's experience, entire groups yeah. of people, entire whatever. It's it's a tricky, tricky time. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, and yeah, I, I think that's a. That's a better philosophy to bring to the world than I think the the prevailing one that's out there. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Josh. Um, uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If people want to find more of your work and Plasm's work, where do they where do they go? Where do they look? Uh, Plasm the p l a z m dot com. You know that's uh, you can find everything there. There's lots lots of tendrils too. There's an online <laughs> magazine where we're putting. Uh, old content and uh, some new things as well. And one of your other many kind of side arms of Plasm is uh, the Portland Stamp Company, right? Yes. My business partner, Nico, Nico Cortellis, is a lifelong collector of stamps. Uh, he started collecting perforation machines, and <sighs> you can imagine that those are a little heavier and larger than stamps and uh, he suggested that we put them to use if you ever go to a stamp show the first question that people ask 
you uh, is uh, what you collect. And so people collect flowers or countries or various topical things. And so he collects uh, what's called poster stamps. And these are, or they're also referred to as Cinderella stamps or advertising stamps. These are stamps that do not contain monetary postal value. And so what we do with the Port- at the Portland Stamp Company is uh, we make um, custom lick and stick stamps, poster stamps for anybody who wants them. We also make uh, pre-perforated blank sheets, which you can buy those and draw on them directly, or you can run them through any uh, printers, Xerox machine, Resograph, that kind of thing. So you can make your own stamps using those, or you can uh, we can do something custom. It's a really cool way to kind of look at a very familiar shape and object and form and get a chance to experiment with it and do something totally different, which feels so in line with the rest of the work that you've done throughout your career. Well, it's analog, and as, as I said, we're analog beings, and it's got a tactile quality to it. These yeah. pinhole perforations, this is a traditional style of perforation, and you have to activate it with moisture. You can lick it. You can use a sponge <laughs> or whatever, and then you stick it on something. Yeah. Lick it and stick it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Thank you again, Josh. Um, so welcome. Thank you, Sean. I'm, I'm so, so grateful to have you here. And thank you to the listener. If you enjoyed listening to this show, uh, why not head on over to the service that you use to to do so and leave a review or a rating. I know we, we're collecting actually a lot of ratings on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify listener, you can give us stars there. Also, it would be great if you'd tell a friend about the show because I know, you know, word of mouth tends to work better than anything else. You can follow us on social media from our brand new website, Did I Do That? That design, lovingly handcrafted, uh, which is also where you can find uh, fun images that go along with each and every episode. This is Did I Do That? I'm Sean Schumacher, and as we always say at the end of every single episode... Did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. Bye! Uh, it's up to you. I just uh, I don't want to receive credit for that as an individual. That's a big important award. Okay, I will. That we didn't win. <laughs> we <laughs> failed to win that. Yes, but it's an honor to be nominated. Absolutely. Yeah, so. I mean, that's that's a big one. Oh, you've got you've got the certificate of failure there. Too. Yes, I forgot that. So this could, if you wanted to we can, we talk can about that somewhere, if um, you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. The, yeah, I figured it's all about failure. We might as well bring my certificate of failure. <laughs> it's it's beautifully it's beautifully done. Um, lovely seal. What is the story of the certificate of failure? Well, here? we did uh, Nico and I did a workshop, a plasm workshop at uh, Ben Design. Uh, one year, and uh, it was called Come Fail With Us. And <laughs> and so we had a room full of people, and we had designed some exercises to uh, essentially take them out of their comfort zones. And, like, uh, one of them was 
uh, drawing uh, with both hands at the same time, for example, or, you know, so there were a bunch of these prompts and we uh, set it up with some context and actually uh, uh, some edits from the from Nico's on creativity interview series because one of the questions he often asks in that series is the role of fail about the role of failure so you have different people uh, whether it's Milton Glaser, Paul Scher, Stephen Heller talking about the role of failure and mistakes so that that was something that we show a short clip at the beginning then we had people uh, we made them fail for <laughs> 90 minutes or two hours or something. And then at the end of the class, uh, we uh, announced everybody each name of the participant and they came up and people applauded and we handed them the certificate, certificate of failure with their name printed on it. And, and Nico and I signed these and we signed in the opposite places. So he signed where my name is and I signed where his name is. <laughs> I didn't even notice and, that. And we were, and we were um, in the studio and signing all these before the workshop and he snuck this one in here with my name on it <laughs> and i didn't even know that i i didn't even know i and after after we got through signing them all he gave me here's your certificate so we we did design this uh, certificate of failure and it's it reads joshua Berger is hereby certified to experiment try new things fail spectacularly seek uncertainty, and even fail at being fearless by fully embracing the anxiety that accompanies taking a meaningful risk. Hmm. So, And I credit my wife, Tiffany Lee Brown, who wrote this so succinctly. It's a good bit of coffee She's, there. She's uh, also a co-editor for Plasm Magazine. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. So, Certificate of failure. Come fail with us, and we can do a uh, yeah, yeah. So we do those workshops, but uh, we would do another one somewhere if somebody wanted it. I would love that. Oh my gosh, um, that sounds like so much fun. Um, I mean, I like. I really think that that's one of the things that gets talked about the least in this field. Like, and it's so necessary. Like we we're always fucking up something well like, yeah it's what you do with it that makes the difference exactly. right it's how do you learn from it and you know it's what do you call failure anyway i mean it's uh if you take thomas edison as inventing a light bulb i mean it's uh, hundreds of times so do you call all those failures or do you call it a success in the end i mean it's the role of experimentation is vitally important in our work. You can't always know, and you have to be comfortable with unknowing. Yeah. The outcome may not be tangible for a long, long time as a success. And the more, uh, the, in fact, uh, in one of those on creativity interviews, Milton Glaser talks about this where, you know, the role of design as a designer, as a commercial artist, your role, you you. You need to be successful in your work if you're working with a client. Yeah. Right. So that and so success drives repetition. He says, you know, and it takes it takes you out of, um, it takes you away from learning. Right. Yeah. Because if you're doing the same, if you're doing the thing that you always know, you already know how to do. You might do it better than anybody else, but if you want to really grow as an artist, you have to be in a place where you. Uh, have a risk of failure. Yeah. And the greatest discovery comes when you're in a place where you uh, don't know the result. That's so true. I mean, like, if you're just, 
and like you're you're if you're just like spinning your wheels doing something that you've already done like who's that fun for who's that interesting for like failure is the risk of failure at least is like what what makes the design worth making well yeah do you want to be good or exceptional <laughs> you know i mean if you if you if it's good design great it, well good is mediocre i mean that's that's not I don't know. Yeah, it's the the mayonnaise of design. It's fine. <laughs> it's not fine. I hate mayonnaise. But, yeah, you know, I, don't, I think... <laughs> I don't know if... The, I mean, that last if all, part, it's... Yeah. Well, yeah. Whatever. You almost, like, strike that. It's not It's not about... Uh, <laughs> it's not about greatness, per se. I mean, it's about doing something that you really want to do. Yeah. And yeah. does it fulfill you? That's the most important thing. That's, yes. You know? Yes. That's a great lens. That's a great lens to look through it on. Like, I I feel like I said that sentence wrong in some way, but I can't parse what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I Did I mention I got two hours of sleep last night? <laughs> ah, no wonder. <laughs> I'm not at my most coherent today. <laughs> 